Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. Andrew Musgrove here. I'm joined by a football editor, Mark Douglas. Later on in the show, we'll announce the winner of a Football Manager 2021 competition. And we'll also hear from the Daily Mirror, Simon Bird, as we talk about the season so far, Steve Bruce and everything in between. Right now, we'll kickstart with our exclusive story that we broke over the weekend. And for those who haven't read it, in a nutshell, we submitted several FOIs to different government departments asking for correspondence relating to the failed Newcastle United takeover. Specifically, we asked for anything between our own government and the Premier League, as well as that of the Saudi government. Now, some departments, like the one for business, looked through their systems and came back to say they didn't have any correspondence relating to our request. Others, like the Foreign Office, are currently undergoing a public interest test, which basically means they're weighing up whether the public interest in the information we've requested outweighs the effect it might have on the parties involved. The Department for Culture, Media and Sport are currently delayed in getting back to us. Now, the one that we wrote about was the Department for International Trade. They confirmed that they did have correspondence, but they provided three reasons under the FO Act, which they can do, to why they would not release the information. They said it contained personal information, information provided with confidence and also commercial interest. Now, some of you listening to this might be asking, well, why is this important? Well, in my opinion, it's to do with clarity and transparency. And given the amount of investment that was set to come into the Northeast with this deal, I feel that Newcastle fans, and not just Newcastle United fans, but people across the whole of the Northeast, deserve to know more. They deserve to know how involved the government were in this process. They deserve to know what the government's position was on the takeover. And it's important because given the impact of COVID, that investment would have been keyed anytime, but it's going to be even more so when we come out of this pandemic. And it's frustrating that we're not going to get the information. Now, we're not expecting the Department for National Trade to release personal or financial information because, of course, that would just be a little bit daft. But I do feel they've got an obligation to be as open as possible. And to blanket my request with the reasons that we've previously referenced earlier, it just doesn't sit right. Mark, I don't know about you. What did you make of their response? Well, I think I think they they probably um, they don't feel there's a big enough public interest was 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 one of the reasons. But then I think probably more importantly was the the fact that they said it was commercially sensitive. I think that's probably what we're, what we're dealing with here. Um, the, the problem the problem you've probably got with the government and their relationship with Saudi Arabia is that it is you know it. It's wrapped in a layer. There's so many different layers of com- of complexity. You know, it, there's, there's a lot of diplomacy between the UK and Saudi Arabia, and probably a lot of it is very, very sort of. I don't know what the right word to what right word to say would be. It, it, it's probably quite opaque. I would think. I, I, th- I would think a lot of things that are said um, in unofficial channels they wouldn't necessarily want to come out, and I think that's probably in the end why this group didn't want to go to arbitration because they felt that it might reveal it might it might drag the course of Saudi Arabia the kingdom of Saudi Arabia into things that um, perhaps they just didn't they don't want they don't want to play out in an, in an open court or in a court in, in in England and I would suspect that that's probably why they're doing it there's, a, there's an element of real politic I think about the way that the government are about the BIF and about Newcastle United and let's be honest if this was a um, if they had been buying 
let's say, had they been buying Sage or if they were buying um, uh, Northern Rock back in the day, this wouldn't, it would never have been blocked. I just don't think there's any chance of it being blocked in, in the same way that it was. And it would have gone um, very much under the radar and it would have just happened. But because it's Newcastle United, because it's a football club, because there were so many other different things um, involved in it, it just it just wasn't it just wasn't able to. I mean, I um, you know going a little bit off the freedom of information request, I, I, I had a wry smile on my face when Saudi Arabia was named as the one of the new circuits in Formula One the other week. I mean, how much debate was that? A lot of the voices that we heard around the Newcastle United takeover were absent from from the Formula One debate. I mean, I just didn't see it. Didn't go on for days and days and days. I didn't see letters back and forth you know and i think look i i, I was you know i i feel that there is an element of you know you cannot say anything negative about the takeover that it won't happen that the that saudi arabia that it wasn't handled well that saudi arabia might not be the best thing in the world for newcastle united you you weren't you're not allowed to say that uh, in the summer of, across social media but i do agree with what a lot of people said in the summer was like we are being treated as a special case and I think this proves it. Your 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 story proves that that is the case, because you know on other t- on other on other similar size stories for the for the region, would we have got some answers potentially? I think probably. Let let's be honest. When it comes to things like takeovers and billion pound deals, um, they probably will always hide behind. Um, they will always hide behind the public in, the, the the idea that it's commercially sensitive or that there's not enough public interest in it. It doesn't mean it's right. It, it, is unfortunately where it is but i think it's important to show that we are you know we we are pressing for answers and, and, and as you say in your piece you know this is um this is not a small you know it, it's been weeks in the in the making this and if it had come off if we had have got some of the correspondence it would have obviously provided a little bit more background um but as it is i still think this deal is is shrouded in so much secrecy some of that is because the buying party don't want everything out there at the moment some of it might not reflect particularly well on them i'm not sure i'm not sure it would but also that you know they they want to keep it alive the possibility that this deal might might still happen um but you know it, it's a bit galling isn't it when saudi arabia look as if they're in the pif it look as if they're going to open a, an office in the uk um you know that they've, they've set up a platform to potentially buy tv rights that they're, they're going to bid for the tyson fury anti-joshua fight you know they are going to be embedded in UK sport culture, whether we like it or not, you know, just like Qatar, or just like Dubai is uh, in European football as well. Whether we like it or not, this is happening. You know, just by preventing Newcastle United from being taken over by Saudi Arabia, it might have felt like a win. You know, I'll never forget the national journalist who wrote Lucky Newcastle and then did his big piece about it and never written about Newcastle United since. I think that's the kind of thing that irks us around here is that the idea that that was some big victory and, and meant that we'll never... Um, I meant that that'll never, you know, that, that that Saudi Arabia down the road, they'll never, you know, they'll never, they'll never have any uh, pernicious influence on on English football and on um, European football is is gone forever. I don't believe it for a second. They'll, they'll be back at some point. They'll they'll take over a club. They'll they'll, t- they'll either take over a club. I mean, they're already, you know, they're, they're, the Syria's Super Cup final has already been played in Saudi Arabia. They're already going to bid for TV rights, European TV rights, the next round of of, um, of football. You know. That was what I always felt in the summer. And, uh, you know, I think your story, I think just highlights why I felt in the summer was a little bit unfair, was that Newcastle were treated differently. You know, I don't think that it was handled as well as it should have been from on the buying side from the start. Um, 
but it should have been allowed through, in my opinion. I, I always felt that. I always felt it was unfair. You know, I look at some of the other deals already gone through since then. Um, you know, okay, I could I see the argument that, that, that you know you needed to have a clear line, but if if the court if the, the PIF are actually providing written assurances from the court of Saudi of, of Saudi Arabia, well, you know, I felt what what was the level of what was the level of proof that you required? I don't think they could ever meet it. And I don't think they ever really wanted the deal to happen. Um, if I'm being honest, you know, I think they found reasons to keep knocking it back. Um, I'm not one for conspiracies, but I, I just felt that they were hostile to the deal in the first, from the from the off. You know, there was too many negative voices around it, and um, that'll be why the correspondence hasn't been released. For those wondering why the Premier League weren't subject to an FOI, it's simply because they're not a public authority, so they don't come under that scope. We have submitted a request for an internal review, which is the first stage of an appeal process to the Department for International Trade. So we'll keep you up to date with that. And we are waiting on returns from the Foreign Office and the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Um, also, we have been followed by a lot of Marseille fans over the weekend who are seemingly very optimistic that the PIF have switched focus and are now looking at Marseille. I'm not sure where that's come from. But um, yesterday it was about six or seven new followers who support Marseille. So, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Seen as um, seen as Qatar own PSG. I mean, I don't think preclude um, from taking an interest in, in in another club in another country, but um, it would be it would be problematic in terms of you know potentially trying to get both clubs into the Champions League. You know, they wanted to get Newcastle United in the Champions League. And I don't think they've walked away from Newcastle um, uh, yet. I don't, I don't think they're ready to switch over. I, I remember reading this in the summer and it, it was the, the, the basis of the story was, was sort of seemed a little bit flimsy. Um, very similar clubs, aren't they? Marseille and Newcastle, both big kind of working class very passionate football football clubs, potentially Marseille. I know Marseille obviously, um, you know, have, uh, have have got much more recent European pedigree than, than Newcastle, but they aren't they aren't one of the great they aren't one of the big clubs in in, in France at the moment. Um, but they, you know, there's, there's there's similarities there. But I, I think they wanted a piece of the Premier League because the Premier League is the biggest is the biggest um, competition in the world. Um, when we spoke to them after the deal finished, it was all about becoming you know you, you you see them talking about when they when they owned the uh, when they they took over the formula one circuit talking about building a sporting legacy and sporting brand for saudi arabia that's their official reason that we all know unofficially it's a very easy way to tap up soft power uh, and become you know and, and let's be honest as well probably to whitewash some of the um, negative um views of, of the regime as well um that's the world we live in We'll move on now to another topic that has got some fans split, and that is the prospect of a new kit manufacturer next season. Um, some designs have already kind of been leaked over the past few weeks. Mark, you mentioned it in the notebook this weekend. It's not been confirmed that Castor will be the new manufacturers of the kit, but there are whispers that they're even planning a kind of retro kit and like we say, if you look on social media, I'm, I think the designs that I've seen look, look spot on. I'm quite excited as a, as a fan that they, that might be the new um, strip. It's something different. 
Can you just explain what you put down the notebook for those who haven't heard it and uh, your take on what you've seen of them new kit designs? So three weeks ago, the um, I think an, an industry um, an industry website uh, wrote about Castor, which is a um, a kind of like unique. It's kind of like a boutique sportswear brand that is looking to kind of make. It's a challenger brand. I think is the right word for it. you know. It's not one of the big, not one of the big names. They've got Andy Murray. They've got Rangers. They kit out Rangers this season as well. Um, and an, um, an article was written a few weeks ago saying that they were. I think they they agreed the deal for Newcastle United. I think they wrote the other week now, um, but that was what met with a wall of silence when we when we then went through our um, industry contacts to to try and try and find out what what, what the situation was. Um, I've sort of been told by a couple of different um, different people in in the interim period that you know there is definitely substance to this story. Um, not sure, not sure. I've quite got it bottomed out yet, so I wouldn't rule out somebody else coming in but it does look like it's going to be castor next year um the value is five million a year which i find you know seems skinny to me um i'm not sure whether that's the 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 basic level and then there might be some more payments based on kit sales which um you know would would be a way to kind of the deal as well but when you look at kind of what spurs and liverpool are getting for their kit it does illustrate i think probably how how um you know, Newcastle are struggling in, in, in that department. I think a lot of that's down to Mike Ashley as well. And um, that, where, that, that sort of brings us round to what is Mike Ashley's relationship with Castor because there was a lot of rumours in the summer that uh, when Rangers took over, when he took over Rangers, that he was involved in that and that he was some kind of, um, he was some, some he was providing some of the money for, for the Castor brand. Uh, that was denied by them at the time. Um, but then, seem to be some suggestions that because it was being stocked in Sports Direct, because it was being stocked in House of Fraser, um, that, it, that it, they are they do have some some form of relationship, at least a business relationship. Actually, um, I wouldn't rule that out to be honest, because I know that last time uh, Newcastle changed kit manufacturers from Adidas to Puma, uh, Mike Ashley intervened in that one. He was definitely had a, a big say in them moving away from Adidas and Nike. Because he was um, he was having running battles with Adidas and Nike as part of his um, as, as part of his, what he what he does at Sports Direct. You know they they've never provided premium product to to Sports Direct. They obviously do. They are stocked in Sports Direct, but Nike and Adidas. Um, I think I think I'm I'm sh- I'm pretty sure I, I'm, I'm I'm right on this one that they they provide the next level down um, paraf- the, um, apparel to Sports Direct rather than the the premium stuff they sell themselves. Um, they don't want it to be marked down in price, which obviously Mike Ashley's whole business, um, whole business um, mo with Sports Direct is bringing is is getting in the the top brands, marking the price down, and then getting people to come in and buy other stuff. That's that. It's always that's what it's always been about, and that has been a long long running battle. So it does stop Newcastle, I think, in some ways from from sort of going out to open market a little because. I don't think Nike, Nike and Adidas are probably, you know, I think the uh, relationships have been repaired since then, but it's obvious that, you know, given the, given the previous, if there, were, if there is still some ongoing um, antipathy, that, that they wouldn't, that they wouldn't be the Newcastle United kit manufacturer as long as Mike Ashley's here. Um, Puma, obviously, I think signed a, a rollover extension last summer, um, probably due to a lot of the uncertainty around the club's ownership. That was, uh, that was just a one-year deal. 
Um, and I think that there were big plans if the takeover had happened to go out the market and say, look, this is what we're going to be. Um, we are going to be a big, you know, we're going to be a big player in, in English football moving on. Who, who wants who wants a bit of us? Um, and they would have probably tried to tend to it that way. But obviously Newcastle have to just get on with things in the meantime. And it looks like Castor have, have been, are, are the ones who are going to take over. And a very interesting brand. Um, two brothers in Liverpool. Um, the fact that Andy Murray's, I think, is a shareholder as well. Um, the kits look great. The Rangers kits look great. But there's been a few concerns, I think, about quality over there. They are the first club that they've kitted out. Um, so you'd hope that, that they, they do it a little, a little bit better for Newcastle. You know, the quality, I think, was was definite problems with the first batch of shirts that they supplied to Rangers fans. Um, I think they've tried to address those issues as well. The kits look great, I think, and, and certainly, you know, I think aesthetically it'll be it'll be really interesting and, and they will get a dedicated sort of proper treatment by by Castor that they didn't they wouldn't necessarily get from Puma because Puma obviously have been good partners, I think, for Newcastle. You know, that that's ended into even things like um uh, you know, knowledge sharing with Borussia Dortmund and other Puma clubs uh, abroad as well. So, you know, they've, they've been a pretty decent um, pretty decent brand partner for Newcastle. But I know there's been, you know, a lot of concerns about the, the sort of designs and things. I think a lot of Newcastle fans have, have not been massive fans of some of the Puma designs. Um, and, you know, they're obviously kind of a third tier, I think. In, um, so Puma have elite clubs, they have um, A clubs and then B clubs as well. And Newcastle are a kind of B club, so they get their own designs, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're not one of the big Puma, Puma brands, whereas Castor would obviously be able to give them, give them that. Um, but yeah, concerns on the, the value of the deal, if it is indeed 5 million, and obviously Mike Ashley's, Mike Ashley's relationship as well, because if the club is going to be sold and Mike Ashley, and there's a five-year kit deal being signed with a company linked to Mike Ashley, it's not going to be the clean break that we want. And there's always been concerns some of the commercial deals that Mike Ashley's signed with Newcastle and whether they, you know, whether they would, would, would hinder the club moving forward if he did, if he did sell up. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixed, mixed bag really for Newcastle, but, but, you know, um, I think in the basic point of will the kits look good? Will they look a bit different? Yeah, I think they will. And I think I'll be really interested and quite excited. You know, I'm a bit of a kit boy myself as well. Um, it'll be really interesting to see that. But, you know, from a commercial point of view, from an off-the-field point of view, yeah, I think questions if, if, if Astor will take it on, especially for the sort of numbers that we've been, we've been looking at. One to watch. Just finally then, before we hear from Simon Bird, at the time of recording, Rafa Benitez, 4-1 to take over at Derby County once the Bin Zaid deal is complete. Your thoughts on that? A lot of people are saying, well, is he going to drop down a level? And his contract's still running over in China, but he's done it before, you know, obviously mm-hmm. with Newcastle. When you read that story or that, or that link, what, what, what was your first uh, reaction? Well, it's an interesting one. I think we're all going to be watching what goes on at Derby because um, the takeover there by Bin Zayed and, it, and it, it's it's not done yet I gather it's pretty close is is pretty much all the same characters who were involved with Newcastle um, and the financing of that deal will be really interesting the last we heard of the Bin Zayed group they were looking to get some financing to, to finance the Newcastle deal through um, through through bank loans I think was, was, was one thing that we heard so where the It'll be really interesting to see whether the Sheikh Khaled is indeed a incredibly wealthy individual um, and is just able to bankroll it, or whether he's got consortium partners, or whether he is indeed borrowing money 
to finance it, which obviously is something that um, you're not allowed to do in the Premier League. Um, I'm not entirely sure how, how rigorous things are in the air. It didn't used to be, obviously, because we saw a lot of problems. So it's really interesting, uh, really interesting there. Benitez is only going to come back to England for a really big job. You know, he's only going to come back to England if he feels... You know, he left the Newcastle job because uh, he didn't feel he had the potential to, to take the clubs where he wanted it to be. He's not going to come in and take over Derby if he feels that they'd just be treading water. If, if it is this multi-billion pound takeover that, you know, that, that, that um, maybe it is. I, I don't believe that kind of money is, is there. Um, he, he might decide, look, Derby's a really, Derby's a really big club. It, you know, it, it's not potentially one that people in the Northeast would think of as a, you know, potential mega club, but there's a massive amount. It's a real hot, hotbed of footballers, the East Midlands. I think that that part of the East Midlands, um, Nottingham Forest and Derby. Derby's only a, you know, it's not a massive place, but the crowds they get there are really, really good. And I think there's a potential for growth at Derby. Definitely, it's a, you know, it, it should be a Premier League club in my opinion. I think it's a, you know, you, you see, you see that that that. The, the, the sort of crowds they get for, for where they've been they've not really had sustained success at Derby for, for, for such a long time but it is a big club um, but Benitez doesn't look like a fit to me I, I think he'd come back to the Premier League I think he would um, I think he would take, come back to Newcastle in a, in a shot under new owners because um, you know you could see the potential there and I think although the link was played down a little bit in the summer when potentially the Saudi EIF were coming in. There were a lot of the characters there, knew Benitez really well, and I could see I could see that being a potential potential one for a reunion. Um, the betting odds for something like that, I just feel at the moment they don't know. They don't know what what um, Midhat Kid Y um, and Jake Khaled would do at, at, at Derby, sorry, because they, they, you know, they, they appear to me, uh, they seem to be very naive, you know, they seem incredibly naive. I mean, handing out their WhatsApp um, to to fans, I still, you know, still, and then ended up getting a, a Northeast-based DJ to send out tweets for them about how the deal was going at the end. It was just, it was such a mess. Yeah, I think they need somebody who really understands football, you know, and I think I'd, for them, at the moment, it would I would go for somebody experienced in English football. They're in a mess at the moment, Derby. They, 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 their first priority is to, get, to stay in the championship. To be honest with you, not 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 to look at somebody like Rafa. And, you know, Rafa knew Rafa knew the people who Rafa knew Bin Zayed, and they didn't get involved. They didn't they didn't make any contact with him um, that summer. It must be said they weren't you know they weren't um, they weren't going for going for that. I think they, they fancy the chances of getting somebody like Jose or something like that. I think. Was what was what we heard at the time, which was you know again, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what the right way to to say it is. It, it seemed optimistic that way. I think um, Rafa Benitez is, is is very optimistic. I think he's pretty keen to come back to England, um, but there's only so many jobs that he could really go for. You know, I mean, I think he would have taken Leicester went before they uh, ended up getting for Brendan Brent, Rodgers. I think he would. You know, I think he wants to consider West Ham because that's one that he's looked at in the past. I think he'd got, I think he'd have gone to any of those clubs in, in England when he uh, when he left Newcastle. Because China, as much as you know, it's probably been lucrative for him, and it's been great for him to see new cultures and things. Let's be honest, he's he's out of sight, out of mind a little bit for European football. And I think that was always my 
worry for him was that you know you get forgotten pretty quickly in the in English in um, in European football. Luckily, he's got people over here um, who press his case pretty well. So I, I don't think he you know I think if a job comes up, he'll be certainly in the mix. But as you said, his contract is still there in in China, and it's got another year and a half, hasn't it? So um, I don't know how whether there's a bit of golden handcuffs there as well, but. We we will see. We will see. I think I'm going to watch Derby with with a lot of interest. It could go one or two ways, couldn't it? That one. Um, but I think we'll um, you know we'll, we'll see soon enough. And it would be really interesting to see to see those people talk about what actually happened with Newcastle because um, you know I know Neil Mitchell, our columnist, wrote extensively about it at the time. A lot there was an awful lot of scepticism, but um, but I think he's going to do something for us um, when that deal's done. Um, so what is that? Thanks there to Mark Douglas for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Just before we hear from Simon Bird, just a little reminder that we're over on YouTube at the Everything is Black and White podcast. If you want to see our lovely faces, because that's where you will get the video form of these very podcasts. If you're happy with the audio, that's fine with us. Just please remember to like and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not share us around your Newcastle United supporting friends and family as well. We always like to get new listeners as we try to bring you the very best and latest insight into everything to do with Newcastle United, whether that be transfers, takeovers, or just general chit-chat about Steve Bruce and the formations and results and what have you. It is a real pleasure to serve you guys with your Newcastle United need. Now let's hear from the mirror's Simon Bird. Simon, thanks for joining us. Middle of the international break. How are you keeping? Not too bad, thanks. Yeah, busy doing a bit of England under twenty one stuff and a bit of Sheffield today as well as as well as Newcastle. So it's been okay. We we welcome the football coming back though. Indeed. I'm not I'm not a big fan of the international break. I didn't I didn't watch England against Belgium, so I escaped that uh travesty. I'm not sure how they played. But anyway, we'll move on from that and we're gonna talk about Newcastle. Um and just have a little look really at the season so far. You know, they're thirteenth, eleven points. Just your summing up of what you've seen so far this season? Well, it's it's been reasonable, hasn't it? I think the pre-season was, was decent in that the signings were good. Um, they spent a bit of money um, and did decent deals to get Callum Wilson in and Fraser especially. Um, and so, you know, everyone was a little bit enthusiastic then and thinking this could be half decent. Uh, I think the aim is still probably getting in the top 10, if that's possible. Um, debatable whether it is possible. Um, so, you know, the season's been, it's just been okay, like a lot of things about Newcastle recently. Uh, you can't get too enthused by it. Um, there are points of concern. There are points of encouragement. Um, but, you know, fairly par for the course. When Steve Bruce is asked about formation and tactics and style of play, and he comes back, which he has done quite often with the words to work and progress, what's your take on that? Because a lot of fans say, well, you've been here, not a while is maybe a stretch too far, but you've been here enough to maybe see it more than a work in progress. What is your take when he does come back with that, when he is questioned about how it's going on the pitch? Yeah, well... I mean, it is a work in progress The the because uh, he keeps changing formations between a back four and a back five. So in in that in terms of that definition, it's a work in progress. Um, however, you, you you know, Bruce has been there, what, a season and a bit now. Um, uh, and you, you might argue that there comes a point where there should be a settled, settled plan and a settled formation and everyone knowing where they fit in that. Um, however, I think he's found... 
a little bit like Rafa found before in that it's quite hard with the centre-backs they've got to trust the back four. Um, it can be a bit leaky. Um, so he's gone back recently, like, which has been heavily debated, to a back five. Um, I think the feeling has been um, the past manager and this manager is that if they may, may, maybe lack a bit of pace at the back um, and it needs shoring up with three centre-backs. Uh, and they can really swing backs from that. And that's, so he's gone back to that. It's not Bruce's natural formation. It's the formation that he, you know, he tells us he wants to get back, get to a back four and have more in midfield and offer more up front. So, uh, yeah, it is a work in progress, but there comes a point where he needs to say, or it's certainly two years in that he's got the players he wants, he's filled the gaps and the weaknesses, and he's on a back four and then building from there and in a bit more of an attacking style. Do you think, is it a case that Steve Bruce maybe now just needs to stick to what he wants to do? Or do you kind of maybe support in some way adapting to whoever, to whoever, to whoever you're playing because he hasn't got the players to stick to a certain formation against every side? But at the same time, as he keeps changing and chopping his, his formation and, and his style, it is maybe affecting the, the long-term aim of what he's trying to achieve. Yeah, you, I mean, you can see what he's trying to do, um, and the previous manager did it as well. Uh, that that if you've got weaknesses, you you try and plug them. And you, he's, he's, the Newcastle aren't a top six team, which is what or top eight team even, which is everyone everyone wants them to be. Therefore, they're not going into games being or, or Steve Bruce doesn't think they can go into games imposing themselves on teams and thinking this is our style and we're going to play that. And we're going to beat this team, and that style is going to work. It's very much a reactive thing at the moment, and it has been for years. You know, for several seasons, it's been you play a top four team. Wow, we're not going to have the ball. We're going to have to set up the set up the formation, which means that we're not going to have the ball, and we're going to keep it tight and stay in the game. And that that's been the frustration for Newcastle fans is I think that that's been for several years now since they got promoted has been the the adaptation that the coaches have done. Um, Whereas I think fans are a little bit frustrated. It's not moved on quicker um, after the relegation, build, rebuilding after the relegation to, to, to fashion a team which says, this is the way we play. This is how we're going to attack. You know, yeah, the other team will be on the pitch and we're going to have to react to them and defend and, and have a formation for that. But we can go for this game. And I think, I think the biggest frustration with Newcastle fans now is that Newcastle aren't necessarily imposing themselves uh, in certain games. And it seems to be um, a kind of reactive uh, formation to kill off the other team or stay in the game. It seems, it's a bit. It comes across as a little bit timid, um, reactive, uh, and uh, and negative. Really. Um, now the debate now is the centre of debate about Newcastle United is have Newcastle got the players and the team to say we're playing like this. We'll give a team a good battle, win or lose. Um, this is how we do it, and we're going to attack, which I think a lot of people want. Uh, and a pragmatic coach's point of view, um, which is saying we're going to have to adapt our formation and and take into consideration the talent on the other pit, on the other on the other teams. My argument would be it needs loose, probably he should experiment by loosening it up a bit more and imposing themselves on a game more because this season uh, more than any um, there's going to be fatigue, there's going to be crazy results, there's going to be teams going up and down in their performance levels because of the number of games and the demands on the players. Um, and Newcastle, with not that many internationals, could could maybe bed down a formation that says, 
you know, we're, we're more than a team that reacts to others. Well, that was going to be my question. The frustration over not imposing themselves on games. When you look around and you see Aston Villa doing it, and yes, they okay, they got beat a couple of weeks ago, but they've had a very good start the season. Would you argue that they've got a better squad than Newcastle? And if not, because I think a lot of the frustration is fans are seeing teams who maybe they think are on their level impose themselves against the so-called top six and actually the results are coming up in their favour. Whereas you look at maybe against Southampton, for example, Newcastle just, I don't want to say the word surrendered because that might be a bit harsh, but it wasn't pretty and they didn't really attack the game in in, in a way that I think fans were expecting them to. Uh, And you saw against Manchester United, once they took the lead early on, they sat back and allowed Man United to come at them. Whereas other teams around them, you know, maybe have, have, have adapted to the situation where we're in, no fans, crazy results. So can you understand the fans' frustration when they look at other teams like Aston Villa and, and seeing what they're doing? I, I can. Uh, and there's a lot of teams in the middle rank of the Premier League, just below, say, the top six, seven, who who are giving it a go and have got to seem to have a, a plan. I mean, Southampton have turned themselves around. You mentioned them just in a year. You know, they lost 9-0 at home and almost almost a year to the day they... they Hammer Newcastle, so um, the, the, you, know, you can turn it around quickly if, if there's a if there's a, if a, a tactical way of playing and you've got the players to do it. Um, so I do understand the frustration. I, th- I think I think if Newcastle if Newcastle are doing are, are kind of a mid-table team, which they are, and they're doing okay, and it's not really spectacular, but it's not disastrous. Um, that that's something. But I think if you're going to survive and enthuse people with that. And make the argument where well, we're in the Premier League. This is a this is a long term building process. I think you've got to you've got to have something in attack, which means you might score two, three, four goals uh, in a game, um, and you might have your bad games as well. But if if you've got the potential to unleash a bit of excitement and a bit of and some thrills, which has been lack, which has been lacking at Newcastle, I think you can get away with being mid table and shoring it up now and then in, in defence. So. It, because that's always been the kind of the tradition at Newcastle for 20, 30 years since Keegan came back that they gave thrills and spills. They might never, you know, they're not going to win anything. They're not going to, um, you know, they don't win cups or anything. But if, if they can have the odd game where they have an amazing comeback or a daft result. Now, daft results don't really seem to happen with Newcastle um, recently. It's, it's, it's all a bit predictable. So I think that, that sort of kind of magic on predictability, if we could bring that, if Bruce could bring that back or the attack could bring that back, a bit more, it might kind of lift people a bit. I've seen accusations of a, a defeatist attitude um, with the Newcastle, like the setup, and if they get anything from a game against the so-called top six, it's a bonus. But again, when you consider how the season's gone and you look at results, and we'll we'll focus on that Manchester United result, for example. You know, they came in on the back of a horrible run of form. Harry Maguire was all over the place. Newcastle took the lead and yeah it seemed like they were a bit shocked and afterwards it was all all about oh well we have to realise we're playing Manchester United and you know maybe I mean the word we, we, the words weren't we should expect to get beat but it was along the lines of you know and kind of realise our place so to speak and yeah. that is frustrating I think as a, as a fan to hear that especially given how Man United came in and do you, do you think that that is a fair accusation of Newcastle? Is that something that you see running through the team or is that one result and it, the reaction was a bit overhyped to it? I, I, do, I think they, I mean, I was at the game, the Man U game and 
I don't think the the result was looked really bad in the end. I don't think the performance was as disastrous as as was made out and the reaction on on social media for, from some fans. I, I mean, they were in the game until the eighty seventh minute. It's just they collapsed after that. Um, and whether he got the subs right or whatever, it was one all against Man United, and that was a, a decent result. Just Man you you know, Bruno Fernandez, Rashford turned the afterburners on and and murdered them in the last six minutes of an injury time. Um, so it was a bad result. But yeah, I know what you mean. I understand because fans react to kind of the mood and the and the language being used by by manager and players. And I do think I think Bruce is really cautious not to to show the opposition respect and not to not to overhype his own team because he probably doesn't think it's worth overhyping. <laughs> um, but there's not a punchiness, there's not a we're going to punch above our weight kind of attitude coming coming from Newcastle. It's kind of middle of the road. And yeah, it, I mean, it it does seem defeatist at times. Not, de- not defeatist, because I don't think that group of players are defeatist. I think they want to do well. But I, I do I do think they could be freed up in the, in the language that's used to, to say, look, when Newcastle United, we should go to, we should match Man City. We are on a day, on a day we can beat anyone. On a day we can score goals against anyone. We've got three or four wildcard players who are, who are really, you know, decent attackers who can turn on the magic and, and emphasise a bit of that positivity a little bit more instead of looking at, looking at how you shut down another team or how, how respectful you've got to be to the other team. I do think there's, as a collective group from the manager down, they've, they've got to think, right, we, you know, we've got players in our team who can turn it on. Calamos can, can score goals. Um, Almiron can, can, is not a defensive midfielder in the middle. He should be up there buzzing around the edge of the box. Sam Maxim can, can win a game for you in two moments, in two brilliant moments. Why not emphasise that and say, and let's, let's get the, the, these players at their max to turn games rather than being a bit defeatist and worried about the other side. Obviously, in the training ground, he's going to do his tactics and be really worried about Man City and De Bruyne and all that. Obviously, you're going to do that, but the talk should be a little bit more about Newcastle punching above its weight and getting the most out of that squad. You mentioned there the wild card players, and a lot of debate has been about Amiron and St. Maximum. Um, let's concentrate on St. Maximum, first of all, playing in a more central kind of free role, number 10. And he has said, you know, he, he would like to play that. But for a lot of fans, it isn't working. So what, what is your opinion on, on that role that he's in? And, and does Steve Bruce at some point and maybe soon have to just take him aside and say, look, we've tried it, it's not working. I know that might be your preference, but you're much more effective kind of on the wing and just actually you know, be the boss and say, look, it, it's not working. We have to change it. Because yeah. when Sir Maximum isn't on his game and it's arguable that the last three or four games he hasn't been, Newcastle are a much worse side. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's very true. I mean, it's, it's strange though. We always look when a, when a player's earned his contract and he's been hungry earning earning a new contract, massive wage rise, which Sam Maxim clearly had earned um, with his performances over the last year. Um, and it does seem that it, his performances have dipped. And that's not a lack of hunger. It could be coincidence. It could be his change of position to number 10. Um, but the last few games, he's not, he's, not, he's not been on it. He's not been in weather... That, that could be circumstances of a game, but but he needs to get angry again and get hungry and make sure that he is the 
he's the he's the outlet. And now teams will will be working Newcastle out and seeing singling him as the danger man, and he'll get extra attention. And there'll be tactical plans designed to to stop him getting the ball from the opposition. So all that's got to be overcome. Um, but Sam Maxim's got to show a bit of aggression now and and really go on to another level to to you know two and a half million quid a year, whatever he's earning now. Um, he, he clearly wants to be a really top player um, in, in European football and he knows all about European football and he loves the game and he loves training. Steve Bruce has spoken about this, how much he's hung, how much he, you can ask him about a player from anywhere in the leagues in, in Europe and Sam Maxim can tell you about him. So he knows his stuff um, and that, that kind of ambition has got to start coming over and now he's got his, his new deal. And yeah, if he wants to play number 10, great, but... Um, he might not get as much room there um, than he than he does when he's breaking out wide. Um, so he's got to be used better, and he's used best when he picks up the ball, has a fullback in front of him, and can skin him, um, uh, and then put the devastating ball in. So quite often he's 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 beaten someone, then tried to beat them again, and he's done a bit too much on the ball. Um, he could be lethal if 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 he starts to um, just just beat his man and, and do the do the killer pass or shot. Um, so yeah they need to get more out of him um, undoubtedly uh, number 10 mean, when he's playing number 10 it means he can go right or left so it should be like a role which which gives him a lot of freedom um, but I think he was playing in a you know a, sort of a, a three was it, was it, it was Callum Wilson up front and then and then Sam Maxim playing just behind if there was a three attackers and then Callum Wilson and, and Sam Maxim was the number one it was, it was the number 10 behind that that might help if he's got two wide men around him to release. Um, but it is a conundrum for Steve Bruce and one that they've got to solve quick because they need uh, they need like someone approaching t- you know, 10 goals from Sam Maxim this year. Because, I mean, it's not just Sam Maxim because if he changes that, then there's the Almiron question, uh, Jeff Hendrick. And there's, there's so many questions that Steve Bruce is facing in this international break for this Chelsea game. Almiron, you've mentioned, obviously, not a defensive midfielder, but that is where he's been deployed at the moment. He showed, it, showed against Argentina the kind of performance he can put in when he's pushed up a bit. Do you think Steve Bruce is going gonna, is gonna to change? Obviously, Almiron's had the yellow card, so he'll hopefully be back a lot sooner than anticipated um, from the national games. Um, so probably will be in line for some involvement against Chelsea. Do you think he'll, if he is, Steve Bruce will change it and maybe push Almiron a bit further forward and then the whole system will have to change? Yeah, even yeah. I mean, Almiron should be in the team in an attacking role. You know, every time. You know, he's he's that. He, he the Premier League is so based on pace now, and Almiron has got it in abundance um, that that he should be in the team. And he's not. He's also one of those players who's not scared to work back. So you'll see him scurrying back into the left back position to help Jamal Lewis out. So he's not like a, he's not just like a luxury player. He will do the whole package. However, it's the attacking end where you need, I mean, I don't know how many goals he's got, I haven't looked it up, but he needs to score more goals and get more key, key, you know, key passes, assists, etc. Um, and it looks like, you know, it's like he's on fast forward all the time. So he's sprint, he, there's no change of pace. He, he, did, he, won't, he needs to sometimes slow it down to then be able to use his pace. Whereas at the moment, it's like almost headless chicken stuff where he's just belting at full pace and then he's not, in, he's not hasn't got the composure or the, or the positioning to to make the you know the killer pass or shot, so I think somehow he needs to slow his game down and then use his pace at the right time. Um, and yeah, look, I'm sure there's staff at Newcastle looking at the the Argentina game uh, where he allegedly did well and seeing how that worked 
he's probably you know competing with Ryan Fraser for that left of the front three behind Wilson position. Um, but can he play on the right as well? I mean, you'd think that. I mean, my ideal front four would be Wilson up front, and then the, the line of three just behind that would be Fraser on the left, um, Sam Maxim or an Almiron vying for number ten on, on the right. So that's kind of the front four that you you would see being productive um, and hopefully settling down. Um, but yeah, I mean, they need to get more out of Almiron. Uh, but he's been here a while now, so hmm. you do. Is it two years now? Um, so you, you do wonder. You do wonder how how much he can move on and how much he's le- how quickly he's learning, and he's got to learn a bit quicker as to what is effective in the Premier League. Four Premier League goals thus far. And obviously, that was one of the criticisms that he wasn't scoring enough. But I think we're we're lucky enough to be there, or we were before lockdown. You're you're back in now, but you watched the whole game. Whereas you, you saw pundits, and we're going to get onto pundits in the middle in a minute. And certain pundits were having a massive go at Almiron, but it just struck me um, that the pundits weren't watching the full game. Yes, you can say no assists, but when you watch the the, the passage of play from last season, he was he was starting the, the you know the passage of play, or he was having yeah. a role in it. You might have not got the assist, but he was still playing a crucial part. And that's sometimes what he does. You know, he might not get the the stats, but he, he does play a crucial role when he's on top of his game. Yeah, he remind he's a bit like he's kind of a, a ball cat. I don't remember Gutierrez when Gutierrez was, was in the side and he always worked so hard down the left. Uh, he was he was helping his left back out, but he was also he was the ball carrier which relieved the pressure on Newcastle in, in that era. Um, but his criticism of Gutierrez was he never he didn't get the goals, he didn't get the assists, but he was still a, an absolutely key member of the team because of that ball carrying and, and you're right say like you know just outside Newcastle's own penalty area he would get the ball and be off with it and it's very very similar to to Almiron um, and that he can he can find a pass to, to pass through that area and start a move um, and that's an important part of the, of the game as well when you when you when you're pinned in your own box and can you just ping a couple of quick passes and and beat your man and get away and he does that really well um, so yeah, you, when when you you got to watch the start of moves, and you're right that he, he does start a lot of attacks um, and get up in support of them as well. And he, I mean, he'd be he'd be on that team sheet all the time. I think he really should, you know, get him back from South America quick and and get it drilled for the weekend, you know, ahead of Chelsea because that kind of breakaway is, as all coaches know, when you're on the attack and then a team can hit you quickly going the other way. That's when teams are vulnerable and you can get. You know, get get three on three or four on four in attack, and it's not there's there's room in there for for pace. So that's what Newcastle have got to get got to get working. Really, we mentioned there Almiron on kind of the edge of the box, and obviously he was at fault for one of the goals against Southampton. Um, don't want to focus on that mistake, but as a whole, did you what did you make of Steve Bruce's decisions against Southampton? Because he obviously he came out and he said from six minutes it wasn't working. You know, Fabian Cher mentioned a similar thing as well. And fans were saying, well, why didn't Steve Bruce change it early on? You know, he didn't change it half time. Why didn't he stop the kind of the passing around the back? Because that was just inviting Southampton to press, which they're really good at. Did you they're think did you think he made the wrong decision? Yeah, did, did he first of all set up wrong against Southampton? And then once he saw it going so badly so early on, should he have changed the, the approach? Well, there are they're kind of like tiny margins, aren't there? And Southampton were on a roll and they wanted to get to the top of the Premier League and it was, it was you kind of sensed before the game, this is going to be their night. Um, 
when you look at when I talk about fine margins, it's two individual mistakes, long staff tripping over the ball, getting robbed on the edge of the box, and the same same with Almiron. Um, so if it wasn't for that, they could have had a nil-nil, and they could have you know. But it wasn't an attacking performance, and it wasn't an imposing performance again. Uh, and Ward Prowse was just awesome that night. He was literally everywhere, and the legs that he had in midfield, Newcastle couldn't match. And I've never, I've never realised he had that kind of performance, that that midfielder. I've seen him at the under twenty one level, um, and never had thought he had had that kind of performance in him. But he is superb for Southampton. Um, and if Sean Longstaff's looking how how he can progress in the game from being like from a good start in the last, last couple of years, if he can get fitter and quicker and cover as much ground as he can, which he is a bit of an athlete, but he hasn't got that quite turn of pace yet. Um, that Ward, you know, Ward Prowse is a good example for Longstaff in that game to, to see what's required to really lead a team from, from central midfield. I mean, could Bruce have changed it? It was a tight game um, and they didn't get forward enough and they didn't, have, they didn't create enough. And that, that was because Southampton swarmed all over them at the back and Newcastle tried to, had a plan to, pre, to pass through that and it, it messed up a couple of times and it cost them. Um, Newcastle, you could see Sam Maxim trying to get, we talk about pressing all the time in the game now, it's a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a buzzword, um, but Newcastle tried to get that going and you could see two of them do it and then Sam Maxim waving his hands to get a third man blocking off and a fourth man blocking off, which is how a press works. You only, once there's one weakness in it and there's, a couple of players free for the pass, then it, then you, you're knackered. So Newcastle didn't do that, didn't do it well enough at the other end to put Southampton under pressure. I mentioned it was a, t- a tight game, but we've seen as well in several games this season, you know, Carl Darlow is just stopping the score sheet from looking rather embarrassing. I think they've conceded the most shots on goal this season, haven't got the yeah. stats to hand, but it's it's not pretty. I know Sky flashed up the graphic halfway through the Southampton game, so they'd have to add on quite a few more shots um, given what happened after that but that's not a good thing at all I mean look Carl Dolo brilliant so far it's going to be interesting when Martin Dubrafa comes back how steep is going to play it but at the same time you don't want your keeper being that busy and do you think that look's going to run out eventually they're going to end up losing 4-5-0 or five nil at some point yeah, they, they probably will. Um, but I have to say, Carl Dahl has been brilliant. I mean, he's, he's not really done a lot much wrong when he's been called up by Newcastle. They're quite lucky to have a, a so-called reserve keeper, if that's what he still is, um, who's that good. He's a good shot stopper. He's, he's been really good claiming, you know, claiming stuff in the air as well. Um, and he's, it's probably Newcastle are a really good team to be the goalkeeper for because you get plenty of action, your confidence rises, you stop a few and, and you look good. Um, but yeah, you count up the number of shots that Newcastle are conceding, and it is bad. Um, and Bruce knows that he's looked. They've looked at that. They said a couple of press com- conferences ago that that they they were aware of it and they wanted wanted to shut that down a bit more, um, which needs energy in the centre of midfield um, to do so. So there are various multi-pronged problems that <laughs> that all link in. Um, have they got the energy to stop the shots and the focus and the and the and the nimbleness and the pace to do that? And then have they got the pace and the <laughs> pace and the reactivity to then be piling forward to catch teams on the break? I mean, it's the kind of you, you need a good player in the centre, good players in the centre of midfield to be able to do both, uh, and that's what they're looking for a little bit more from everybody. Um, but Darlow has been great. You're right to mention what a what a problem Steve Bruce is going to have um, when Dubravka's fit. Dubravka's a brilliant keeper. Uh, he wants to be playing in the first team to 
for the summer, so he's so he's part of it in the summer for his international team for the Euros. Uh, but you do say like managers generally um, don't drop a second choice keeper if he's playing well. They wait for the first clanger and then then they're out, or they change it in the cups. So the FA Cup will come and Dubravka will play. So Dubravka is probably going to be sitting on the sidelines for a for a few weeks, just making sure he's hundred percent fit, and building his body up before he gets back ahead of Carl Dahl if he gets back but it's, it's good competition. It's a nice dilemma to have. And I guess when things are going well at Newcastle Castle as well and everyone's fit, there's quite a few of them dilemmas on the pitch. But unfortunately, when results don't go in Newcastle's way and people don't have good games and obviously negativity rises. And you mentioned there the midfield. And we're going to focus on Jeff Hendrick. You know, when he signed, it wasn't one that people were overly excited about. But I think a lot of uh, people kind of understood he had that Premier League experience. He could just just go about doing the kind of maybe the jobs that don't really get noticed. Mm. But the past few weeks, he's not had a, a good time for Newcastle or for the public violin. He got sent off um, in their last game. You know, Roy Keane had a go at him for uh, what happened against England earlier in the international break. What, what have you made of Jeff Henrik's time on Tyneside so far? Well, you're right. It, well, it wasn't like a... Um, it's something that enthused you or oh, it didn't enthuse me it probably I don't, I don't know I, I feel like I feel bad saying this because he's going to be a million times better football than, I, you know, than we are as, as people who talk about it play and if you, if you ever got near him on a football you wouldn't get near him on a football pitch because you wouldn't be able to tackle him but we're talking about Premier League level and he's kind of for me he's a bit of like um, he's a kind of a fill the hole player and like yeah, he's there and he scored that. He obviously got a header, a header against West Ham, a tap in against against West Ham opening game, which which relieved the pressure. But it was good. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, he's a bit like I don't know. He's not quite as energetic and destructive destructive as Isaac Hayden, but he's also not as creative. Doesn't seem to be as creative as as Shelby. So he's kind of stuck between. He's caught between a few stools, and people are working out what you know what he does. He's an anchor. He's I suppose he's an anchor man for midfield. Um, in terms of you shut, he shuts down people, and he, you know, he'll give simple balls to the more exciting players. But so he's not like a, he's kind of a squad filler, <laughs> and he was free. Um, he wanted to play centrally. I think that's why Bruce said he would play centrally rather than a bit on the right. He's played on the right for Burnley, which frustrated him a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't want him to become like the the like a hate figure or a, a figure who everyone just turns on because you know, he's not. It's not his fault that Newcastle are just like, kind of mediocre. He's just part of it, and he, he signed and got, probably got a very good deal to sign as a free as a free agent. But yeah, you did you did you did think well, you know, I hope this doesn't. I hope this signing doesn't like impede the progress of Sean Sean Longstaff. Um, you know, Longstaff's not the finished article, and he's got his faults. But I, you know, I'd like to see him alongside Hayden or even him in the number 10 role sometimes because he played it against Bournemouth I think um, end of last season after the lockdown played it really well I think they can get a lot out of him um, and Henrik's there as a kind of a backup when there's injuries he's not going to change I don't think he's going to change games don't think he's going to score much uh, and then you've got John Joe Shelby when he gets fit to come back and Hayden and if they play a two at the back two holding with Hayden and Shelby then That'll be it. Will be Hayden and Shelby. If they're playing three at the back, you'd probably bring Longstaff in, and I think probably Hendrick might be 
might be fourth choice even. And I, but, but Bruce has been loyal to him because he signed him in the summer and he's obviously made him promises to get him. So that he, was going to be my next question. It'd be interesting to know what he was promised in the summer because, you know, when Shelby got injured, it was a good chance for him to stake his claim in that central midfield role and make it really difficult for when Shelby does return or as Sean Longstaff was working back from the, the illness he had. Um, and obviously Hayden was out as well. But now Hayden's back, Longstaff's working towards that full match fitness. Yeah. I mean, surely against Chelsea, um, I've asked Lee Ryder this, he said he'd like to see the Longstaff with us in the middle. Mark said, Mark Douglas said Hayden and uh, Sean Longstaff. Who would you put up against Chelsea? I would play, um, I would play Hayden because he's the one with the legs and the energy and the destructiveness. And I would play well, I, Shelby's not there yet. I don't think so. so you'd play Sean Longstaff. I, I would play that them as the anchor too, because they're both energetic and you know can can do that kind of destructive, simple job in midfield to shield the defence, and then and then you unleash your, 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 your back four with those two shielding, and then a front three that's quite attacking. If Fraser, is Fraser fit, I, I don't know. Play on and Almiron and Sam Maxim, and then Callum Wilson up front, and then. So yeah, you'd be looking at that kind of that that kind of that kind of thing. Though that's the risk that Steve Bruce is calculating. Does he play a back four, a holding two, and then a three three attackers with Wilson up front? Uh, will he do that against Chelsea? I, I, I don't know. He might match them up with a back five again. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. Tough to do. If he does go back to a back four, Jacob Murphy out and one of the actual right backs in. What have you made of his emergence? Because I think everyone was quite excited to see. Jacob Murphy, given the chance, and he performed so well in that wing-back role initially, he was exposed quite a few times against Southampton, and then people were kind of saying, well, it's a bit strange, actually, you've got Anquillo, Kraft, Yedlin, you know, all there, and yet it's Jacob Murphy playing yeah. in that, that role. What did you? What have you made of his emergence and then the decision to actually play him as a right wing-back? Well, I thought it was a brave decision to play him wing-back. And but he did he did really well at Wolves, you have to say. And I, I think if you're going to play a back five, he can be a wing back. But then so can Mankio. So uh, Kraft, a much more defensive minded right back, he can get forward actually. But he's he's probably more he's more more of a back four right back um, if you put it that way. So I mean I I really like Jacob Murphy, and I think he could do. His his biggest problem is confidence and feeling like he's. He, he's going to be a big Newcastle player and I think if they work on that and I think other players have worked on it by texting him and encouraging him and Dwight Gills dropping dropping texts I think so if they can all build his confidence up I think Murphy could be a, he's a Premier League player I saw him at Sheffield last year Wednesday and he was on the bench came off the bench and, and you know was, was their brightest player by a mile so I just think it's his confidence and, he, and he's had knockbacks he's, he's spoken himself about getting into the team and then Playing, thinking he did all right, and then being dropped, and that's kind of difficult. That was under Rafa as well. Um, but it's a, probably a big season. It's probably a make or break season for him. In that this is the time he's got to he's he's got to prove himself. He's been here what since 2017, I think he signed, um, and it, it's probably this is his chance, and he's got to take it or not. It or not. He's always done okay when he's been on, and he's one of those like modern footballers who who is really fit, athletic. Can can get up and down, has a bit of pace, um, and so he he, is, he has got all those attributes. He just need, he just needs to have his head right. He's got the skills and like the free kick against Wolves was brilliant. 
and I'd love to see it work for him at Newcastle. Just a quick mention on Newcastle strike, as obviously Callum Wilson, brilliant signing. I think a lot of people are just bemused. No one out of the top four or five came in to get him. He's proved his worth, you know, six goals, fantastic. Hopefully he'll be fit for Chelsea. It's a bit touch and go. If he's not, who who starts? Because they haven't really got a striker who's uh, in a fine run of form. Carroll's still lacking that goal. Joe Linton isn't number nine for all he's got the shirt. It's going to be a, it's a big question for Steve Bruce if, if Wilson indeed does miss the Chelsea game. Yeah, I, I think you would probably put Joe Linton up front. Um, I mean, Wilson, if he's tweaked his hamstring, even if it's a minor tweak, and we're, we're led to believe it's not totally, not a really, really bad one. Um, coming back after two weeks, even with a tweaked hamstring, is a bit of a risk. So they're going to have to be right, really sure that he's okay to, to start him on Saturday, I would have thought. Um, unless it was a, just a pull and it was a little scare and it's not torn. But, you know, uh, you, you'd be wondering whether he, whether he will start. Uh, I, 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 would, I would err on the side of not. Um, I could be wrong, but um, yeah, Joe, Joe Linton, you'd probably play Joe Linton. I, I don't think you'd play Andy Carroll. I think Andy Carroll, for a, a game where you're not going to have the ball, Chelsea are going to dominate those same old problems. You probably need someone dropping back, being mobile, getting around the pitch. And I don't think Andy Carroll's mobile enough to do that in a starting role. I think you could chuck him on last 15 and mix it up a bit uh, and try and get something off Chelsea aerially. But you, you, I know Joe Linton's not a number nine, and he run. He, he's meant to run the run the right channel or the left channel um, off a striker. Um, well, we don't know. What, we don't know where where Joe Linton's best position is. Do we? We still don't know. But I would probably think that he would he he would start as, as the centre forward. It, it's nice to see yeah. Newcastle have a prolific goal scorer. I mean, you've covered Newcastle for a long time, and you've seen the likes of Martins and CC. Um, but to get Wilson in, someone who's really hit the the ground running. I mean, they've only had 64 shots in the Premier League so far this season. He's, he's obviously scored six, gone close a couple of times. You really do need a striker who, if he's in front of goal and he's got that one opportunity of maybe two, three created in a game, like, you know, you'll bet quite a bit that he's going to score. And it, it's, it's yeah. nice to have that confidence in a striker. No disrespect to the, to the other options Steve Bruce has got, but it is nice, yeah. isn't it, to... Have that yeah, it quality. is. Yeah, and that's the. I, mean, I think that's probably if the fan base for the for for everyone covering Newcastle and watching them. He's the bright. He's the bright spark. Yeah, you're exactly right. Confidence is the thing. You think, well, Callum Wilson, get him chances and he'll score. Um, and it's nice to think that what well, he's got six goals, seven goals so far already. So he's probably he's already beaten the, the mark from last year. Shelby was the top scorer last year in the Premier League with six. Um, he's already done that. He probably he's probably looking for 15 goals minimum this year if he stays if he stays fit and it's not a long-term hammy hamstring injury. So yeah, it's great to see that confidence uh, to have confidence in a striker. And if you look at the seasons where Newcastle have done well, you know, Martin or Shearer obviously guaranteed, you know, 15 20 goals a season when he was fit. Um, you know, Bar, Remy, even in the recent history and in the Ashley era, they they banged them in, and Newcastle had good seasons. Um, Cisse as well. You need people. You need a striker getting 12, 13 goals minimum, uh, and then and and more if you're going to be in the top ten. You can't you can't get top ten with 
everyone chipping in three or four goals each. You, you need a reliable scorer, um, and they've probably got that in in Callum Wilson now if they can if they can get the ball to him enough and if they can get him shooting. Because at the minute he's scoring at the rate of like once every time he gets the he has a shot. It's, it's, it was a remarkable stat earlier in the season. He got five five or six goals from six shots. So yeah, need him need him getting a few more shots on target and a bit more bit more chaos created up front. Do you think in January they'll they'll go for a new striker? Because obviously West City and we're waiting to hear the news of whether Callum Wilson's going to be fit, how bad the injury is. We don't like you say believe it's it's too bad. But do you think they're going to dip into the market? I mean, there's been a couple of stories over the weekend, a couple of League One strikers linked, um, and then a um, striker who's got the most goals so far in League One in France. So they're clearly yeah. scouting and looking around. But obviously then Dwight Gale's coming back, but then can you risk depending on Dwight Gale to be your backup given his injury? We all know he's talented, but that injury record is something to think about. So come January, are you? what, what would you do if you were Steve Bruce? Would you be knocking on the door and saying, come on, we've got to get another striker in here? Um, I, 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 don't, I, don't know if it, I don't think it would be their priority. Um, I, I think probably like a, you know, is it Sumari that they were in for um, a couple of years, yeah. a couple of Januaries ago? Uh, that, I mean, I think they probably need like a, a beast dominant midfielder who who is who's got a bit of everything, who's got who can run all day and who's got a bit of pace and physicality. I think they're, they're kind of lacking that at the minute. If you if you're going to spend like twenty thirty million, you probably need to get the equivalent of that that player, even though he didn't want to come. Um, yeah, because Shelby, you know, maybe he doesn't get around the pitch as much. He's got a great passing range, but is he the Killer in, in in off the ball, Hayden's probably not creative enough. So if you if you can kind of spend your money, spend your pot on a player who, if there's one on the mark in the market, I think they've probably put their eggs in the basket of they've got four, they've got five, six forwards now who they've got in there. Even with Gale out and with Joe Linton not on the team, and then you've got the three, you know, Sam Maxim, Almiron, um, Fraser. And then Callum Wilson. So you're looking at like you're already you're already juggling like six or seven players for the front three four places. So I, I don't know if they would go for a striker again. I would say it's probably midfield or even. I mean, there's players now that need to offload. There's a you, Chronicle did a story the other day, Lee Ryder um, with a multiple number of people. Was it ten people out of contract in oh, 2021? Yeah. And there's a few of those that they're, they're going to have to get rid of in January. You're going to have to get. You know, bring a few million in for, you know, Dwight Gill's fit. A championship side would would want a Dwight Gill, you know, scoring goals for them, and he could make the difference. You know, to to get get promotion. So there are going to be deals that they need to do in January, and it's probably the priority is going to be getting those contracts and and wages off now, and raising a bit of money from the players that have done their job at Newcastle. And, probably going to move on and they're not going to progress the club more in terms of getting it up the league and you maybe just cash in and cash in free the wages up and then buy someone else and just try try a different route to take a gamble somewhere else you can't take gambles all the time but there are a number of players in that Newcastle squad who you think maybe the club should be cashing in now um, selling it selling whether not at their peak but while they've done their job not really worthy of a new contract and, and then rejigging it a bit um, and that's a big job for Bruce in the scouting department next. I think uh, there's a lot of players being given, a lot of senior players being given contracts by Steve, by Bruce at Bruce's behest. Um, you know, Shelby could have sold him for a lot of money, but they've kept him. Matt Ritchie, you know, is, is in that bracket as well. Um, 
Now, once you've given that contract, you're either saying you can progress the club and you're going to be in my team, or you're protecting the player's value and then the player will be sold for a higher value than if the contract was running down. And there's a lot of, I mean, I think Bruce in the next, well, until the summer, he's, he's going to be evaluating a lot of players in that squad and so will Lee Charnley and the, and the, and the bosses at the top thinking, do we make some money out of these guys and try, try another route and try and make us better in another way? Um, or not, <laughs> or you keep them. And Steve Bruce likes that core of senior English, Englishy sort of homegrown native players. Certainly going to be interesting to see what happens with, especially those out of contract. The penultimate question, then, before we get on to the final question, which many of you could probably guess it is on the takeover. Um, I just want to ask you about pundits. We mentioned it earlier in the show. Obviously, um, likes Robbie Savage, Chris Sutton, um. They've been very vocal over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Robbie Savage was in, in the Daily Mirror with his column and he's been on Five Live as well, trying to understand a bit about the situation at Newcastle. And I think what really frustrates fans is that accusation. We saw it with Mark Lawrence and that Newcastle United fans are demanding Champions League football. And that's just not the case, is it? You know, they, We all want that for the club, but we understand that's not going to happen right now. Um, are fans, do you think, misrepresented by national pundits? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of one of these, and as a journalist, I, I try not to get it, get at this, but there's kind of a, if you're going to, if you're going to criticize anyone in the world of football, it usually is an enemy or someone you've never got on with in the, in the, in the past. Now there's an element of chumminess about, um, you know, if you've got a column to fill or you've got airspace to fill, it's much easier to be nice about someone and make an excuse for a manager than it is to actually say a bit of reality and be constructive and be seen to be slightly critical. Um, and there are journalists up here, um, Chronicle as well, who, who do the criticism thing fairly and constructively and can see faults and will point them out. But I think when you, when you don't know the detail, and a lot of these pundits don't watch Newcastle 90 minutes and don't know the detail um, and are a little bit out of touch, uh, then it's just easier to be nice about a manager and say Brucey's experienced, he knows what he's doing, and he does, but, but it doesn't absolve him from criticism um, and a question that he could be better. So, yeah, I think they are represented. I think that there's a subtle, there's a subtle, subtlety in this argument. Newcastle fans don't expect their team to be challenging uh, or to be in, the prem, be in the Champions League or to finish top four or top six. But what they do think is that club has the ability to do that and has potential to do that. And there's a lot of clubs in the Premier League haven't got the potential to do that. But we know, having seen it happen, and, and we know the club has the potential to do that. And that's what Newcastle fans are arguing for. They're saying, we're a big club. We're 52,000. 15 years ago, we were in the European Cup and in the, in, the, uh, in the UEFA Cup and in the Champions League. So we know it can be done. And the problem is, the, the further Newcastle are seen as a mediocre, mid-table, just avoid relegation type of club, the further the club's income falls, the further behind they fall to the elite. And money talks in football. And in the last 10 years, Newcastle have, on the pitch, you look and look at the stats, they were same as Liverpool 15 years ago, income-wise, same as Tottenham. And, they've, and those clubs have just are now earning hundreds of millions of pounds more than Newcastle commercially in terms of playing in the Champions League, um, Deals for shirt sponsorships, deals for for wines, whatever. Man, you've got deals for everything. They've got an official everything. So they've fallen hundreds of millions behind in the last ten years, and that's 
you know, Mike Ashley's tried a lot of things to change the foot to to change the football club and do it do it in in the way he saw fit because he didn't like the way football did business. Um, but he's not kept the football club up in that in 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 those areas, and that's that's one hundred percent what's happened. And you do, my biggest worry is whether that gap can ever be bridged. Now Newcastle can get very lucky; going to have to get very lucky with signings um, and the way they spend the money that they've got to bridge the gap. And uh, Leicester have done it, so there's, it's not like it's not completely hopeless, a hopeless case because Leicester have been clever and they've they've something gelled there, and they're still building on it now, and they've got good managers to do that. So it's not a lost cause, but it's going to take a lot of luck to get back up there. So when Newcastle fans get hammered for wanting their club to be successful and to challenge in the top four, it's because they know it can be done because they've got 50,000 and a massive fan base um, and a history there which suggests that it can be done. Not that they expect it to be done, but it can be with the right management, with the right people in charge, with the right investment. And one of the other ways they could get lucky is if this proposed takeover went through obviously um, we all know the, the details of, of what's happened I mean from your point of view is it dead in the water is it still alive in the, in the background what's your take on it I think the club <laughs> will be taken over eventually um, I think in the summer the consortium buying the club massively underestimated the problem that the piracy caused um, with having the, and having the Saudis involved um, uh, the Premier League is a massive British export, uh, UK export, million, tens of millions of pounds um, for the exchequer coming into the country because of that. Um, and the Saudi regime allowed piracy to happen, um, allowing meaning that uh, a broadcaster being sports lost lost a hell of a lot of revenue and a lot of money um, because of, because of their piracy. Uh, and it's a it's a geopolitical battle between the between countries. Of course, it is. Um, but until that piracy thing's resolved, you know, will, will that come? I wonder whether there could be room for for a revival if, when the new the international broadcast rights are renegotiated uh, in the next not next few months, but six months' time. Certainly, certainly within 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 the next year, there'll be another auction, and I don't know whether we split up and Saudi Arabia can have can buy their own rights. That's unlikely. I think Premier League don't want to do that. Um, but I think the, the consortium underestimated the problem um, that that was going to cause and it should have been sorted quicker. They didn't realise how even at governmental level, the government were going to be under pressure to, to have that, that sorted before they could even, the Premier League could approve that deal. Um, now, Newcastle, as it's been written before, that it's, it's probably the last club worth taking over. It's an, someone, probably George, said unpolished diamond. It's the last unpolished diamond of, uh, in the Premier League with potential, with vast potential to transform and also being a one-club city. So it is the club, if anyone's going to buy, that is worth buying. It's, you're not just investing to be in the Premier League. You'd be investing to go to really do something and enthuse the city again. And it needs to happen. We all know it needs to happen. It needs to happen with a regime that we can be comfortable with so if the Saudis are reforming and they're doing stuff in their country which modernises it and makes it more, more acceptable to um, the political world and globally, then, then good. Keep doing that and, you know, don't be at war and be, and be ripping off a great British export and pirating it and, and turning a blind eye to it, which they did. Don't be doing that. Be part of the system. And, and if you're going to buy Newcastle, buy it as, as 
without controversies. You know, reform. They need to reform. Their, you know, women are locked up. Um, freedom campaigners or, or political campaigners are locked up in Saudi Arabia. That that wasn't even part of the um, equation when it was turned down in the summer. Um, so will, will it happen? I mean, they pulled they pulled out, and they pulled out because they were, they couldn't get it through. Basically, they couldn't get that deal through, so they pulled out. Whether that means they're now not interested, um, I don't know. But but if they're going to buy a club, and I think a state like Saudi Arabia. They bought the rights to the Grand Prix recently, and so they're hosting a Grand Prix next year, which in itself got scrutiny and was controversial. Um, they're clearly looking at sport as a vehicle to make their regime more more integrated in the world or more palatable. Some call it sport wash, sports washing, um, but they're clearly still with the Grand Prix rights. It's proven that they're clearly looking at sport as a as a way of spending their money and being part of the global community. Um, you know, Newcastle fans are just aren't, aren't ma- massively interested in in the politics of it all. Um, they need to understand why why the deal collapsed, and that was that was that was the piracy thing. Um, they want a successful club, football club that's invested in. I, I can see that I can see the deal remaining on the table for. I mean, this is my p- opinion, not 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 factual information. I can see the deal being remaining on the table, and the the players. Having still having a determination to do it, and eventually, when stuff's sorted out behind the scenes, um, it actually happening. You know, I, I think it's such a serious deal to be done, and I think you know, there's no one else. You know, I don't think Ashley wants to do go negotiate with anyone else. I think he wants that deal to remain on the table because Ashley wants to hand it over. I mean, all his for all his faults, I think he wants to hand it over to them because he thinks it, he believes they've got money to pour into the club, and I, I think. One of our colleagues who's very much into sports politics um, tweeted the other week that Ashley's actually rebuffing um, rebuffing other other potential bidders and actually not not entertaining their bids. So there clearly is something there where Mike Ashley knows the determination is there and knows that knows their their will is still there. So otherwise, he'd be inviting other offers to get his three hundred million. But it's gonna it's a long term thing, isn't it? It's it's not going to happen next week. It's not going to happen you know, end of the season probably. So it's just one of those things where it bubbles along. What do you make of the, uh, the two legal challenges? Obviously we've got one where Mike Ashley's, uh, you know, instructed two of the top sporting barristers to act on his behalf and Newcastle's behalf in the dispute with the Premier League. Then we have this fan one as well. I mean, in your view, I mean, employing uh, someone like Nick DeMarco to, to act on your behalf is, it's quite the step, but is it any more than kind of, you know, just kind of not throwing your prams out, yeah, the toys out the pram, but is it, can you see it actually heading into a court case or anything like that? Um, yeah, obviously you read about DeMarco and he gets, he gets the results. He was, was he involved in the Sheffield Wednesday yeah. um, decision recently where the, their points deduction was halved. So um, they will be looking for every little clause and, and um, you know, weakness in the Premier League's um, case. Uh, however, you, you do. I mean, you know, you, you look at the job adverts in sport, and you'll see the Premier League have got an absolute army of of expert lawyers themselves, um, and that's before you get into, you know, everyone in the Premier League being a shareholder and having their own say. Um, they, they've they've got lawyers. They they will presumably, you know, they looked at this for six months, or it was on the table for six months, and there was a lot of chat with their rights holders and, and people behind the scenes and even the governments were involved um, and 
you'd expect the Premier League to have a just think they've got a pretty watertight um, case for asking what they asked for, and um, even because you know the dispute it hasn't even gone to the test yet. So the Premier League, you know, don't believe it. It's even gone to the, their own test yet. It hasn't failed their test. So there's, a, there's an argument there whether it's failed the test because it hasn't reached it because they wouldn't let it get that far, or whether it goes to the test and then it's failed. It hasn't even gone to the, te- the official Premier League test yet. So it's all a bit messy. It's all a bit messy, and um, the Premier League will believe they've got a, a, a case and something's got to change. Something's got to give. They've got to admit that it's. I mean, it, it's, it's Saudi Arabian government money which is being spent at the end of the day, and they should just admit that. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, this, is, this is PIF, and the, one of the arguments, PIF is, is not the Saudi government and is not, and is not the royal, uh, you know, sponsored um, investment fund. It's, it's, it just appears nonsense on the face of it. The Crown Prince is the, is the chairman of it. They, 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 they're investing government money to get, to move their economy away from oil and into other things. It's, this is a state organization, you know. It could be legally independent. It could be a legally independent entity. You could argue that in court, which people have. Um, but it's, it's still a state-sponsored thing. So there's that, there's that detail. So somehow lawyers have got to overcome, the Premier League have got to overcome, the bidders have got to overcome before the whole thing gets gets sorted out. Thanks there to Simon for joining us on the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It's now time for the moment you've all been waiting for to announce the winner of our Football Manager 2021 competition. Thank you to those who entered. There was quite a few of you. We do appreciate you sending in your review. The winner is Peter James. That's Peter James. So Peter, thank you very much. Congratulations on winning the copy of Football Manager 2021, which is out on November the 24th. Peter, you've got to email me at andrew.musgrove at reachplc.com quoting the code word, which is Shearer 2020. Once again, thank you to Peter Fentering, congratulations, and to everyone else who continues to listen and support the podcast. Thank you to you guys as well.